Well, let's play a game of two truths and a lie. I am going to tell you three statements about myself. Two of them are true, one of them is false, and you guys are gonna try and guess which one is the lie. You ready? I have had my picture in Newsweek magazine. I have had my picture in Christianity Today magazine. And I've had my picture in the magazine Woman's World Weekly. Two of those statements are true. One is a lie. Now let's see with a show of hands who thinks the lie is my picture's been in Newsweek. How many of you think the lie is my picture has been in Christianity Today? And how many of you think the lie is Woman's World Weekly? Well, for those of you who raised your hand for Christianity Today, you are correct. I've not had my picture in that magazine. But I have had my picture in both Newsweek and Woman's World Weekly. I was in Newsweek when I was 17 years old. They were doing a story on teenagers and religion, and the article featured a number of people with different backgrounds, a Roman Catholic, a Muslim, a Jew, uh, a few others, and I was the one evangelical Protestant that they interviewed. Uh, A reporter called me up. We had a, a good conversation. It was maybe an hour or two long, very substantive. We talked about my involvement in church. We talked about my volunteer activity that I did. And we especially talked about Jesus because uh, he's so important to my life, and I wanted to convey that. And by the end of the conversation, I was pretty pleased. I thought, you know, I got to say what I really cared about, and I'm excited to see how this comes out in the article. But when the magazine came out, I was uh, surprised by two things. The first was that they used a full-page picture of me as the lead image for their article, which you can see there. The second was um, how they summed up what I had to say. There's just one short paragraph they had about me. I wasn't expecting a whole lot, but this is what it said. Clayton Keenan, a high school junior in Glen Ellen, Illinois, says that he is known among his classmates as the religious guy, but that doesn't make him the odd man out. Keenan, 17, an evangelical Christian, is one of a growing minority of teenagers who are vowing to defer sex until marriage. When I read that, I thought, really? Like, that's it. That's all you got. An hour-long conversation about my most cherished beliefs, and it's reduced to that. It it was obnoxious for two reasons. First of all, it omitted any mention of what I really cared about most, which was Jesus. He didn't come up in the whole article. Uh, And second, even if you're religious, when you're a 17-year-old male, the last thing you want published in national news is your lack of a sex life. (laughs) Every time someone said they had read the article, I always want to be like, no, really, it's, it's because of God? Like, seriously, it has nothing to do with the fact that I am a scrawny, bald, pale, acne-ridden, you know, boy here. Like, that's not, that's not why I'm a virgin. I have to say no to lots of women all the time. <laughs> seriously. Uh, it's like, thanks, Newsweek. Um, if you're wondering about the Women's World Weekly thing, I'm just going to leave you in suspense about that one. <laughs> The the really sad thing about the Newsweek article was that I was the only evangelical Christian that was interviewed. And so it summed up, the one perspective from that angle was no sex till marriage. That's what we have to say. And really, is that what we stand for? You know, and is that what the world thinks we stand for? That we're really hung up about enforcing our weird restrictive rules about sex. I do think that that's how a lot of people view us. And that's what makes this topic so tricky and so important to talk about. We are in a six-week series that we're calling Back to Plan A. We've been looking at a whole bunch of topics where as followers of Christ, especially if we're faithful to what Christ teaches, we find ourselves kind of going against the grain. Uh, our, Our culture is kind of going the opposite direction that we are. And today, we are talking about sex. 
And I know that that means some of you are feeling uncomfortable right now, probably for a few different reasons. Some of you, it's because you have picked up somewhere the notion that God has a problem with sex. You've probably heard the classic joke that Christians think that sex is dirty, vile, and disgusting, so you should save it for the one you love. Here's the good news. God loves sex. You know why sex is so amazing? It's because God invented it. He came up with it. It was his idea. God doesn't hate sex. He's its biggest fan. He just wants us to get it right and not misuse his good gift. Others of you are feeling uncomfortable right now because you are sitting next to your kids and you are wondering if they can handle this kind of message. And what I love about that is that you are taking really seriously your responsibility as a parent to be the primary source of knowledge about sex for your kids. Uh, And and if you've got young children with you, like we said before, uh, this is probably not a message for them. But if you have a student who's sixth grade or up, I actually think this is a really important message for them to be a part of. In fact, I would suggest that if you've got a student and they don't hear a message like this at church, then you are probably not protecting your children. You're actually failing to protect your children. Uh, Because here's the truth. If they don't hear about sex from you or from the church, they have certainly heard about it from someplace else. And so if you're a parent, I would encourage you, have your kids here this week, have them here next week when we talk about pornography. This is really, really important stuff for them to hear what God has to say about. Some of you are uncomfortable today because you are sitting next to your parents. (laughs) And I understand that's very weird to talk about this with them right there. Uh, But let me fill you in on a little secret. Your parents actually know about sex. Uh, They had you, okay? Um, But I know it can be a little uncomfortable uh, with this sort of thing. But let me just tell you this. One of the very best things that can happen to you in your life is that you can talk openly and honestly with your parents who love Jesus about sex. Sex is a really overwhelming, kind of confusing thing for a lot of people. And to have someone who loves you more than anybody else does who really cares about you thriving in every area of your life, and they want you to see what God's best is for you, to have that person be speaking in to this area of your life, that's golden. You do not want to miss out on that. It's huge. Some of you are uncomfortable right now because you're afraid it's about to get real judgmental up in here today, Um, and I understand where that's coming from. Uh, Christians, we've got a reputation for being really harsh, kind of arrogant, shrill, and communicating what we think about sex, Uh, and that's a problem. Uh, the, the truth is many of us have not approached sexual sin in the way that Jesus did, which is with gentleness and grace, and that's wrong of us. So I'm going to try to avoid that today, uh, and there, there are two reasons I want to avoid that. The first is this. As followers of Jesus, we know that we belong to a kingdom that is coming, but it's not yet fully here. And so some of us, we have bowed the knee to King Jesus, but not everybody in the world has. And that means it is not our job to impose on the people outside of the Christian community our standards about sexuality. Uh, The Apostle Paul is really blunt about this in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. So within the Christian community, we hold each other accountable for living according to the teaching of Jesus. It's really important. But for those outside, we don't impose our views on them. What we do instead is commend our views. We think they're life-giving, we think they're wise, we think it's the way God made us to work best, but we know that people are free to reject those views. The the other reason we're not going to be strident or judgmental about this is because we know that every single one of us is guilty in this area. 
I know this because the Bible tells me so, but I also know it because the stats tell me so. Did you know that for in America, of living adults, 19 out of 20 adults had their first sexual experience before they were married? 19 out of 20, that's everybody. And if you're thinking, well, that's, are you just talking about like young people today? It's like, no, no, no. Uh, the statistics for people who are between 68 and 77 years old right now, the statistics are slightly better. 18 out of 20 people had their first sexual experience before they were married. And that includes both Christians and non-Christians. So there is no room for moral superiority when we talk about sex because every single one of us is guilty. We're all hypocrites in this area. Uh, And that includes me. Uh, This is not an appropriate venue for me to confess my sexual sin to you, but I promise you it's there. And so I approach the subject with fear and trembling, not because it makes me uncomfortable, but because I know I've fallen short and we've all fallen short of God's standard in this area. So we're not gonna be judgmental today. Uh, Some of you are uncomfortable right now because this subject hits home for you. Uh, You might even be sitting next to your girlfriend or boyfriend and you know it happened already this weekend. And you know you're out of sync with where you should be in this area and you don't wanna be pushed on this. And all I can say to that is, I'm sorry, I'm gonna push today. Uh, But think about it like this. Uh, If you go to a doctor, a doctor's gonna examine you and they're gonna poke you and prod you in ways that's uncomfortable and they might prescribe something that's unpleasant. And and that might make you a little reluctant to go to a doctor and yet you still go. Because you know if if you skip out on that, in the long run, you're gonna be really unhealthy. It's not gonna go well for you. This is how we are in all areas of life, but especially with sexuality. We need to be examined by God's word, even if it's uncomfortable, because it's for, for our own health, for our own life. And I'm not the physician today. Jesus is the great physician. But I am sort of the nurse on duty for this exam. So here, here's the deal I'm going to make with you. I'm going to try to make this as pleasant for you as possible. And if you cooperate, if you're good, on the way out, you can get like a sticker or a lollipop or something. How about that? Well, let's start with the basics here. Uh, Let me just give you the rule that God has set out for sex. It's, It's actually fairly simple. It's got two parts, and it goes like this. God has given us the good gift of sexual activity to be used only in a marriage between a man and a woman. And kind of the the flip side, the negative side is God has not permitted us to engage in or fantasize about sexual behavior outside of a marriage relationship. So on one level, it's it's really simple. There's some details that could be elaborated on. Uh, For example, what what do we mean by sexual behavior? And, And just so you know what I'm referring to when I say that is I'm thinking of any interaction with another person's body that is intended to cause sexual arousal either in you or in them. And so kind of as a rule of thumb, if you're trying to figure out, okay, is this activity sexual, is this, if it would be weird to do with a family member, it might be sexual. Uh, so this would include, of course, uh, sexual intercourse, uh, but also any other interaction with sexual organs, things like manual stimulation, oral sex, it includes undressing together, uh, even uh, some forms of intense kissing fall into this. If it turns you on and would be weird to do with your brother or sister or your mom or dad, it's probably sexual and belongs in marriage. And that's the rule. Uh, Keep sexual activity between husbands and wives. Uh, Let me clarify what this rule does not exclude, what it's not saying. It is not saying it is wrong to want sex. It is not wrong to have a sex drive. It is not wrong to find another person attractive. It's only wrong to engage in sexual activity with someone you're not married to or to fantasize, to imagine about doing that. So the rule is simple. It's not hard to understand, but here's the problem. The problem is most of us only know the rule. 
Uh, we know the do's and do nots, but we don't know the why's and why nots. We've never got an explanation of why that rule is in place. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. And to do that, we're going to look at a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians with me. Uh, and as you do that, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the city of Corinth. Most people assume that all past cultures are sexually conservative. That's pretty far from the truth. Uh, Greco-Roman culture especially was very sexually permissive. Uh, Corinth was kind of had the spirit of, uh, of Las Vegas or Amsterdam today. Uh, prostitution was both legal and socially acceptable there. Uh, and it was understood that both single and married men would occasionally uh, uh, visit a prostitute. If you went to a banquet at a temple in Corinth, it would be really normal for prostitutes to be brought out after the meal as kind of the evening entertainment. And while there was no gay marriage in the ancient world, uh, there were socially acceptable forms of same-sex erotic relationships. If you don't believe me on that, you can just go look at the Wikipedia article on homosexuality in the Roman Empire and you will get tons of details. Uh, this is what the theologian Russell Moore had to say about the situation. He said, in a world of concubines and temple prostitutes, a Christian sexual ethic was just as freakish and countercultural in the first century Roman Empire as it is today, if not more so. So Paul is writing this letter to a young church of people who are trying to figure out how do you follow Jesus in the midst of a highly sexualized environment? And we're going to start in verse 12 today. Oh, and uh, by the way, if you are following along in the notes that we provided for you, I'm actually going to be skipping the first point that's in your notes. Uh, when I drafted the message, it was way too long, so I just cut that whole point out. Um, and I'm actually not even going to tell you what that point is, because like good sex, it's very important to keep some mystery in the relationship. So, <laughs> Verse 12, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything but I will not be mastered by anything. Uh, Paul starts off by quoting a popular saying from Corinth. You'll notice the, the quotation marks around, I have the right to do anything. Uh, we don't know exactly where this slogan came from. It might've been kind of a misunderstanding about Paul's teaching on freedom in Christ, or it might've been something from the, the wider culture, but whatever the case is, the, the Corinthian Christians are using this as an excuse to do whatever they want sexually. And Paul has two responses to this slogan. First, he says, not everything is beneficial. Uh, what he's saying here is the things that you do, they affect other people, and not everything you do affects them in a beneficial way. Uh, that word beneficial used everywhere else in Paul is talking about the effects it has on the community around you. He also says, I will not be mastered by anything. He, he's talking about the way your actions affect yourself. You know, sometimes we do things that we think are going to be really good for us, but in the end, they start to dominate our lives in pretty negative ways. And so in essence, what Paul's trying to say is sexual freedom is not always freeing. It's really interesting to me how the Corinthians are saying something that sounds almost identical to what you would hear someone say today. Uh, just think about the, the video we just watched. Uh, people say things like, you know, people should be free to do what they want sexually. And as long as everybody's a, a consenting adult, it's, it's okay. You, no one should have the right to tell someone what they can and can't do in the privacy of their bedroom. And, and this is a, a popular notion, and there's a couple of assumptions behind it, a couple of, of, of rules that our culture follows when it comes to sex. The first is this. It's what I call the law of consent. It says that sex is always and only right if everyone involved is willing. The other law is this, the law of privacy. 
that no one is allowed to tell another person what they can and can't do sexually. And for most of us, these principles, even if we wouldn't say them directly, are kind of uh, common sense. They seem sort of self-evident to us. They, they sort of have a ring of truth about them, you know? What happens in your bedroom stays in your bedroom. It's your sex life. It's none of my business. It doesn't affect me. The problem with these, these ideas, though, is that it ignores something that should be really, really obvious about sex, and that's this. Sex is a powerful force with significant public effects. And I can prove that to you very easily. I would like everybody in the room to turn and look directly to your left, okay? What do you see? Probably the back of someone's head, okay? Turn and look directly to your right. Look behind you, okay? Look in front of you. What do you see? People, right? Everywhere you go, there are people. The world is filled with people. Where did all those people come from? Sex. Did you know this, guys? Sex makes people. It is incredible. It's amazing. The number one thing that shapes our day-to-day lives are the other people around us. And that means that the most significant thing in your world came out of the privacy of what other people were doing in their bedroom. Sex is not a private matter because sex makes people and people affect everyone. Now, you say, wait, wait, wait a second. Uh, You know, not all sex leads to babies. We've got birth control. People use it. There are lots of sexually active people that don't have children. And that's true. But that isn't all sex does. It doesn't just make people. It also bonds people. When two people sleep together, it changes their relationship with one another. And as a result, it changes the way everyone else around them relates to them. It has ripple effects through their social networks. Uh, Just think of it on a a small scale. Just think of a, a group of friends. What happens if two members of that group start sleeping together? Is that just a private matter between the two of them? I mean, what if it's just a fling for a weekend, that's all it is? That irreversibly changes how they and the rest of their friends relate to one another. If they form a long-term relationship, that shapes it even more. Uh, If they start sleeping together and then they stop eventually, that changes it even more dramatically. All of these things change the dynamic within the group of friends for good or for bad. Sex, even without children involved, is not a private matter. Uh, Just think of how much drama would be removed from our lives if every person around us just slept with someone they were married to. Uh, Not only does sex make people, and not only does it bond people, but it also hooks people. We're going to talk more about this next week when we talk about pornography. Uh, I know that that might sound like an intimidating topic to you, but I want to promise you this is going to be a really fascinating week. Uh, We've got a friend of mine coming in. He's a guy named Dr. Bill Struthers. He's a neuroscientist, uh, and he's going to be talking to us not just about what the Bible has to say about sex, uh, but also the way sexual imagery affects our brains. It's going to be really interesting. I've heard him present on this a number of times, and you are not going to want to miss it. But let me just preview for you one of the conclusions that I'm sure you have already come to yourself. Sex is kind of addicting. Like most people want to keep doing it over and over again. It kind of gets you hooked. And for a lot of people, that means that sex in their life is not just a good thing. It's a dominating thing. It it dominates their thoughts, dominates their relationships, it dominates their actions. And, And that's why Paul says, I will not be enslaved to anything. Something as powerful as sex needs to be used carefully so that it doesn't become a slave driver for us. If you're in that situation, if you're kind of caught in that cycle, I want to let you know, here at Christ Community, we really, really care about that. 
Uh, we actually have uh, some support groups, some classes that meet on Tuesday night as part of our care night ministry, uh, and they deal with sexual addiction. Uh, so if that's you, part of your story and you want to get help, I would strongly encourage you uh, to go look that up. Just look on our website for Care Night uh, or just show up on Tuesday night and you'll find that. Sex is a really good thing. It's also a really powerful thing. And like any powerful thing, we've got to understand how to use it well because otherwise it reshapes our communities and our lives in really destructive ways. Uh, sex is like nuclear power. It, it can either fill a city with light or it can level it to the ground. It all depends on where it's used and how it's contained. I've got a friend who is dying of AIDS. Literally, like any day now, she may pass away. She's my age, and she contracted HIV in college without even realizing it. She wasn't doing anything that was abnormal for most people who are in college. She slept with a few people, and she got HIV, but she didn't discover it for many years. And by that time, it was already full-blown AIDS, and there was nothing that they could do to stem the tide. She found out about her diagnosis just a few months before her wedding, and her whole life fell apart. I, I was talking with her this week about preparing this message, and she said, Clayton, warn them. And she said, I, I wish I had heard a message like this sooner in my life. It might have changed everything for me. She specifically said, she said, go ahead and make them uncomfortable a little, because uncomfortable might save their marriages, or their family, or in my case, their life. And so I want to warn you, sexual freedom is not always free. Let's keep reading in verse 13. You say, the food for the stomach and the stomach for food, God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, the, by his power God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Once again, Paul is quoting a slogan from the Corinthians that they're using to justify their sexual behavior. They say, you know, the food's for the stomach, the stomach's for food, and God's going to destroy them both. And their argument kind of has two parts. One, they say, you know, natural body desi bodily desires, they're natural things that just happen, like your desire for food, your desire for, for drink, and your desire for sex. It's all just normal stuff, no big deal. Second thing is they say your physical body doesn't matter. What really counts is what's inside of you. What you do with your body is not that important. They kind of picked up this second idea from the Greek philosophical culture around them that said, you know, uh, physical things in your body are kind of secondary. Uh, they might even be kind of, kind of bad. Uh, what really counts about a person is the life of the mind, the soul, the spirit. Uh, that's what's important. And these Christians, they kind of just threw God into the mix. And they said, you know, in addition to that, when we die, our spirit goes to heaven and God throws our body away. And so it's kind of like a rental car. It doesn't matter if you, you know, accelerate a little harder or you brake a little harder. You're going to get out eventually and give it away. It's not permanent. Problem here. Um, it's really interesting, though, because when uh, the Corinthians say this, they, they come to a conclusion that most people in our culture have already come to for the exact opposite reason. In our culture, we don't say the body is unimportant. We say it's like the only important thing. It's the thing that matters. And so it's really important that you satisfy and fulfill your body's desires. Uh, figuring out how to satisfy your sexual desires is part of a healthy life. Uh, I've talked with a lot of single people who say, look, I I've got needs. I, I got desires. What do you want me to do? Just uh, have those needs go unmet? Uh, people will often even wonder, is it, is it unhealthy for me not to have my sexual desires met? I mean, it can't be good to suppress that. That's got to be like psychologically damaging, right? 
Well, what does Paul say to that? What he says, in effect, is your body matters to God. He, he, he says, God has a plan for your body. Uh, when God when Jesus returns, God is going to raise our bodies from the dead. If you are a follower of Jesus, God will restore your body. We are not going to be disembodied spirits kind of just floating around for all of eternity. We are going to be in real physical bodies in a real physical world forever. And here's Paul's point with all of this. He's saying God doesn't just want to save your soul. He wants to save all of you, including your body. And that means two things. If God wants to save your body, it means your body is good. If God needs to save your body, it means your body is broken. And you've got to get both of these things figured out. Your body is good. It is a good gift from God. Uh, I know that a lot of people have a love-hate relationship with their body. Uh, God does not have a love-hate relationship with your body. He just has a love relationship with your body. He gave it to you. He wants you to enjoy your body. Uh, There is a reason God gave you your senses. He he wants you to delight in the smell of baking bread and fresh-cut grass and the scent of perfume. He wants you to enjoy the sight of a sunset or a beautiful painting or the curve of your lover's body. He wants you to savor the feeling of silk pajamas or a warm shower or the press of lips against your skin. Your body is good and it was built for pleasure. I mean, my goodness, God invented the orgasm. He doesn't hate your body. I have a feeling that is not going to be the quote that they pull out of my sermon and post on Twitter this week. (laughs) Never know. You do not need to be ashamed or embarrassed about your body or about your sexual desires. Uh, They are good and God-given. But your body is also broken. Just like the rest of us, our bodies have been messed up by sin. Uh, Our desires are good, but it doesn't always mean they're pointed in the right direction. They can be out of whack. Uh, We can want some things too much, other things too little. We can have a good desire and want to satisfy it in the wrong ways. Our desires are no longer reliable guides for what is good for us, and we can't always trust them. So if you're trying to make decisions about your sex life based on just your desires, they're going to steer you wrong. They will lead you at most to short-term pleasure, and very often they're going to guide you into places that will leave you more broken and less satisfied than when you started. The interesting thing to me is that most of us in our culture, we realize this is true in a different area of life, in the area of our desire for food. Uh, There is an entire industry dedicated to helping people get their food cravings under control. Uh, We know that we are in an environment that bombards us with so many unhealthy images of food that our appetites can't really be trusted. And so what do we do? We we get accountability partners, we join groups, we hire food coaches to help us stick with our diets. And yet, with our sexual desires, if, if someone suggests or tries that sort of approach, it seems backwards or unhealthy or even oppressive to go that way. We need to have our desires shaped and disciplined and trained by God so that we want the things that we're supposed to want. And until our desires have been retrained in that way, we're going to find ourselves having to say no to certain things that we really, really crave. I really want you to understand this. Christians don't think you should say no to sex outside of marriage because we're against sex. We think you should say no precisely because we're for sex and we want it to be in the right place. We just don't trust our desires to guide us to what's best for us. So we got to hold these things in tension. Uh, Our our bodies are good and our bodies are broken. And God cares what happens with our bodies. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Here's what we learn from these verses. Sex has a meaning, has an objective meaning. One of the assumptions of our culture is that sex means whatever the people having sex think it means. So if for you, your sexual encounter is just kind of a a no-strings-attached kind of thing, it doesn't really need to mean anything more than that. Or if for you, it's just a way to explore the compatibility of the relationship, it doesn't need to mean anything more than that either. Uh, For others, if you want it to be an expression of love or commitment of some kind, well, then it can be that for you. Sex can mean many things for many different people at different times in their life. And it shouldn't be determined by any kind of outside criteria. If you want to know what sex means, you've got to find out from the people who are involved. Now, if you ask most people what they would like sex to mean in their life, most people would say they want it to involve some kind of affection, some kind of commitment. Uh, Most people really are not interested in casual sex for themselves. Uh, They don't mind if other people do that, but for them, it, it should matter more. They'll say, you know, if I really want to sleep with someone who I know loves me, and I love them, and I want to be with them. That's what's important to me. And of course, they know that their, their partner might have slept with other people before they were with them. And, and if their relationship ends, they might go on to find other uh, sexual partners. But they know that when they're together, they're together. Uh, this is what sociologists call serial monogamy. It's when people have a string of exclusive sexual relationships, but they don't necessarily have the expectation of a lifelong commitment. Basically, it's one sexual partner at a time. And that's what sex means to most people, even if they think it could mean something else for somebody else. Well, in this passage, Paul pushes back on the idea that the meaning of sex is whatever you think it is. Look at verse 16. He's talking about sex with prostitutes, which by almost anyone's definition is a noncommittal, casual sexual encounter. But he says this, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. He says, when you sleep with a prostitute, you're united with her, whether you intend to be or not. And then he goes on to quote Genesis 2, where it talks about how God created sex. Where it says, the man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one. Uh, From the very beginning, this is the meaning that God put on sex. Uh, God designed sex to do one thing, to be a way of self-giving. So in sex, you open yourself up, you expose yourself to another person, and it's a way of saying with your body, here I am, I I give myself over to you, I am yours. I'm going to let you handle the most sensitive and vulnerable parts of me. I am literally in your hands. And it's not just a physical vulnerability. As beings that are fully physical and fully spiritual, we cannot detach what we do with our body with what we do with the rest of us. But when we give ourselves to someone sexually, it's supposed to be a part of a a larger giving of every area of our life to that person. Physical unity is supposed to go along with financial unity, with unity of purpose, with spiritual unity, with unity of family and home life. In, in, In Genesis, right after it says that the two will become one flesh, it says, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is how sex is supposed to work. It's supposed to be this experience of being fully exposed, fully seen by another person, and yet fully accepted, fully embraced and loved. And that combination of exposure and acceptance doesn't really work if it isn't, outside, if it isn't a part of a fuller relationship. 
Uh, sex only really works the way it's supposed to if you're in a relationship where, where another person has complete access to who you are. And you know that they're not going to reject you. And you don't have to be insecure about your status with them. They have already promised to accept you and, and that they always will. In other words, the total vulnerability of sex is designed to only work in the total commitment of marriage. Otherwise, it does spiritual damage to a person. Sex without commitment causes spiritual whiplash. It's almost like your body is going this way, saying, I'm going to give myself fully to this person, and the rest of your life is going the other way, saying, oh, hold yourself back. Over time, repeated experience of this wrenching and twisting of your body and soul, it takes a toll on you. This is why serial monogamy, while it's better than random encounters, still falls short of God's design, why it ultimately hurts us. The same is true of cohabitation, when two people live together without being married. You know, a lot of people assume that that's just sort of the the smart thing to do. It's a way to test drive the car or try on the shoe before you buy it. It would almost be dumb not to do it. What most people don't realize is that all of the evidence points in the opposite direction. Nearly every study over the last 40 years when people have looked at cohabitation comes to the same conclusions. Cohabitating couples who eventually marry, on average, spend less time interacting with each other as a couple. They have more frequent and more intense marital disagreements. They're more likely to experience physical and verbal abuse. Uh, They're more likely to cheat on each other. And they are 33% more likely to get divorced. Why is this? It's because of the way God designed sex to belong in a lifelong commitment. Sexual relationships that don't have that commitment are inherently insecure. You always have to wonder if, if this person's going to leave you, if, if, if there's something that you're going to do that's going to break the relationship off, that you're going to fall short in some way, and the relationship's going to end. And if you start off your life together practicing that kind of insecurity, that kind of conditionality, even if you get married later, that can seep in and break down your relationship from the inside. There's some of you who are listening to all this and you're thinking, okay, well, I'm kind of in a different situation. I'm engaged to someone. We're not married yet. Or or maybe I know we're going to be engaged pretty soon. So we are intending to be together for life. So is it really a big deal if we sleep together? And and that's a good point. But let me share two thoughts with you. The first is this. Intending to get married is not the same thing as being married. Uh, I can tell you dozens of couples that I've known personally who have broken off their engagements. So it is not a done deal until you say, I do. Second thing is this. You you know what you're doing if you sleep with your fiance? You are practicing for an affair. Like, what? What are you talking about? Think about it this way. Right now, you are totally in love with that person. You can't think of cheating on them. You want to be with them forever. You are committed to them. And so you think, this this is just adding to something good. Here's the thing. In a few years your feelings may be different. You might be in a different place in life and you might find yourself attracted to another person. And right now, what you're doing is you're practicing uh, bending the rules and finding exceptions and justifying behavior you know is wrong because you really want something. But in a few years, when you find yourself in this other situation, it's gonna be a lot easier for you there to bend the rules, find an exception and justify behavior because you really want something else. If you respect the boundaries of marriage on this side of your wedding, you are far more likely to respect them on the other side. Let's keep reading. Verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. 
You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. What we learn here is this. Sex expresses your identity. It expresses your identity. This is actually one of the places where the Bible and the culture agree about sex. It's also, surprisingly, the place where the Bible and the culture come into the the sharpest conflict about sex. Uh, The culture around us says, uh, your sexuality is a fundamental part of who you are. Uh, Your sexual desires are so near to the core of what makes you you that part of self-fulfillment is discovering those desires and finding a way to express them. This is why, as a culture, we increasingly feel like it's not just impolite, but actually unjust to tell someone they shouldn't be allowed to engage in a certain sexual behavior. It's not just rude to say, don't do that. It's unfair or even bigoted. This is where the heat comes from in the debate about same-sex marriage. If sexuality is at the core of someone's identity, then to say someone can't express their sexuality in the way they want, it's not just a rejection of a behavior. It's a rejection of a person. And this isn't just about homosexuality. It's true for all of us. To deny someone, gay, straight, bi, whatever, the right to express their sexual desires the way they feel, it's, it's like a rejection of a person. It's like, it's like squashing or suppressing who they are. And here's the thing. Christians actually agree with part of this. We have a strong disagreement with another part, but we agree with part. We do actually think that what you do sexually is an expression of your identity. It is an expression of what you think about yourself, of who you think you really are. And it's true that sexuality really does cut deep. Look at what Paul says in verse 18. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Sex is is something that doesn't just affect us out here, it affects us in here. It, It goes deep. And why wouldn't it? I mean, sex is a way of giving yourself to another person. It's got to cut to the core. It's got to be connected to your sense of self. It's got to reflect who you think you are. But here's where the disagreement comes in. The disagreement is where we go to answer the question of really deep down, what is our identity? Like at the bottom level, who are we really? Who do we think we really are? Look at what Paul says about who we really are. If you're a follower of Christ, verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Look at who God says we are. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It means that God himself dwells in you right now in your body. He is present with you. He is with you always. Earlier in the passage, this idea was expressed as having been united with Christ. We are deeply, intimately connected with him. What we do with our bodies, we do with God present with us and in us. And then it also says you have been bought with a price. What price is that? It's the price of Jesus' death when he laid down his own body to rescue us from sin. And it means that we don't belong to ourselves. We aren't our own. We belong to Jesus. We belong to the one who paid the price for us. And what it means also is that we are precious to Jesus. You don't die for something that you don't love and desire and value. He laid down himself for us. At the deepest level, this is who you are. You are someone that God loves. You are someone that Jesus has died for. You are someone that God's Holy Spirit lives in. 
Your sexuality, it goes deep. It really does. But this goes way deeper. And what you believe about this changes everything. If you've experienced this at a deep, profound level, it changes how you behave sexually. Think of it this way. Uh, We've said that sex is about using your body to give yourself fully to another person. It's about being united with them in a permanent commitment. It's about being fully exposed to another person, yet being fully accepted by them. In a small way, sex is kind of a picture of what our relationship with God is all about. Look at what Jesus did for us. He offered up his body fully and completely to us without reservation. He united himself to us at the deepest level, sharing all that is his and giving it to us and taking all that is ours and putting it on himself. He committed himself to us for all of eternity, promising never to leave us or forsake us. Jesus sees all that you are, everything totally and completely. We are exposed before him, and yet he accepts us perfectly. We are naked and without shame before him. Here's what happens if you don't experience these things with Jesus. We go someplace else to find them. And sex is one of the easiest ways to go looking for them. The problem is sex gets you here, but it doesn't get you all the way. If we don't experience this with God, we're going to go and try to find someone who's going to love us perfectly. We're going to try to find some soul-satisfying pleasure. We're going to try to find someone who takes away our shame. We're going to try to unite ourselves with another person fully. What we do sexually is an expression of who we think we really are. It either expresses a secure identity in Christ by honoring him with our bodies, or it goes out searching for another identity apart from Christ, using sex to try to get what we're missing. Sex is a really powerful thing. That's why it's really hard to avoid misusing it. That's why the one command in this passage is flee from sexual immorality. I just want to end with just a couple of practical ideas of how to actually do that. The verse is this. Begin by confessing your sexual sin. Say to God, this is what I've done. Just be honest with him. Say, this is what I've done. This is wrong. And I'm so sorry for it. Forgive me. Heal me. Change me. He already knows what's going on with you. So just tell him. But not just tell God. Tell another person. I got to be honest. In areas of sexual sin, the most important thing you can do is say out loud to another person, just right there in front of you, this is what I've done. And have them say back to you, this is what Jesus has done for you. If you are struggling to feel a sense of freedom from shame, a freedom from compulsion, a freedom from from the guilt of all of this, that is the the very best thing that can happen to you. Uh, Sin thrives in the dark, so expose it to the light. Second thing you should do is cut off temptation. Uh, Do whatever you have to, even if it seems crazy. If it means canceling your internet at home, cancel your internet. If it means not hanging out with certain people or hanging out in certain places, don't be with them. Don't go there. If you're dating someone and you can't handle watching a movie alone with them, just stop watching movies with them. If it means cutting off a relationship because you can't show self-control with that person, do whatever it takes to honor God. I actually know a couple who is engaged and they had to stop being alone together during their engagement. Uh, They spent an entire year only meeting together in public because they knew that in private places uh, they can control themselves. The verse says, flee from temptation. It doesn't mean simply walking on the other side of the street. It means run away. Third thing is this, get in a community. Uh, Seriously, on your own, especially in this area of life, you are toast. 
If you are not in a community group, get in a community group. And if you're in a community group and you don't talk about sexual temptation, start talking about it. Okay? If you're in a, a mixed gender group, find the people of the same gender and say, this is what's going on with me. Let's help each other out here. How can we do this together? And if you need something more intense than that, like I said before, we've got groups that support people with sexual addictions here on Tuesday nights. Fourth, know where you're going to run to. You can't just run away from sexual temptation, from sexual sin. You got to run somewhere else. Run to the God who loves you. Even if you failed in this area, run to the God who loves you. He's tender and gracious with you. He wants what's best for you. Run to the one who gave himself up for you. He knows all your failures and he forgives them. And he will give you strength. Run to him. I'm going to pray now. And the band's going to come up and we're going to sing a final song. During that time, we are going to take our offering as well. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that there are a whole lot of people here who hearing a message like this have a whole lot of things going on in their hearts. You stir up things that you want us to act on, God. And I know that some are resistant, some are pushing back, some are uh, uh, wrestling with what they should do. And so I pray that what you would do is send in your spirit to give them courage to follow through on the things you're asking them to do to set them free from the things they seem to be in bondage to. That you would send your spirit to give them joy and life in you. Trust that you have what's best in mind for them. And God, I pray that you would make us a people that honor you with our bodies. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.